2017 at the Worlds there, there was a, an interesting day. We had a great cloud street. We were all running towards the first turn point, and then the cloud street turned very much into uh, rain, and the whole area completely got shut down. Welcome to Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. My name is Chuck, and I'm your host, coming to you from the Mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and flying with the Cumberland Soaring Group. This is episode 71. Thank you for joining us. We'll be joining our guest pilot very soon, but first... I would like to give a big thank you to Brad, who gave us a donation on our website. We've added a PayPal link through the sponsors link, so you can do that. We greatly appreciate your support, and thank you to our Patreon pilots who continue to support the podcast and make it possible for us to keep bringing you great soaring content. If you'd like to be our next Patreon pilot, just go to patreon.com slash soaringthesky or click the link in the show notes. You can also go to our website at soaringthesky.com. And check that out. Michelle has some great, exciting news for you now, and then we will hear from our guest pilot. Hey, it's Michelle. We're giving away a Condor keypad. The keypad brings most of the common commands to your fingertips and makes your simulator soaring controls easier to find. Paul Remdy from Cumulus Soaring is making this giveaway possible. To enter to win, send your best soaring pick or short video to Chuck at SoaringTheSky.com and we will post it on Instagram. When you see it, share it, comment, and tag us. We will be picking a winner randomly on the podcast. If you're the winner and you don't fly Condor, Cumulus Soaring will be giving you a $15 credit towards their great soaring products. So get us those great picks and have fun! This episode is sponsored by the Southern California Soaring Academy, a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in the high desert of Los Angeles County. Soaring Academy is dedicated to growing the sport of soaring with young people through its 8th grade STEM outreach programs and giving back to PTSD-afflicted veterans during private monthly events. Flight lessons and mountain soaring are available year-round to the general public, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. To learn how you can get involved, check them out on Instagram and Facebook at Soaring Academy or online at SoCalSoaringAcademy.org. J.P. Stewart is a sailplane pilot and lover of all things that fly. Beginning his aviation journey with remote control aircraft, he began flying sailplanes 10 years ago at Blue Ridge Soaring Society, where he is still an active member and is the Director of Safety and Training. There, he typically flies the Club LS-6B, which he has 19 state records in, on the thermals, ridge, and wave of the Appalachian Mountains, including two 1,000 kilometers, two 750 kilometers, and two 500 kilometers this year alone. He has also flown three JWGCs and is on the 2021 U.S. Club Class World Team and aims to share his love of flight with others as the co-chair of the SSA Youth Junior Committee. When not flying cross-country, he enjoys instructing students or flying powered airplanes. Professionally, he applies his background in RC flying and aviation overall as a senior program manager at Aurora Flight Sciences, where he leads the technical development of full-scale experimental aircraft. JP joins us now to tell his story on Soaring the Sky. JP, welcome to Soaring the Sky. So glad to have you today. How are you? Great, Chuck. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So what is your home glider port? Can you describe it for me? 
Yeah, I consider my home to be Blue Ridge Soaring Society, and wherever I am, I think that uh, that still qualifies as home. It's for those who haven't heard, it's based in southwestern Virginia, just a little bit north of Roanoke, and nice grass strip, about twenty three hundred or so feet usable. Really a family kind of glider port, and mostly known for the Region Fourth South contest, wherein. Uh, about 20 years ago, we had the 1,000K day where everybody that went on task for that day finished their 1,000K. Their oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, you're not too far down the ridge from me, not as, not as a glider would fly. No, I've been up that way just uh, just a little bit. haven't gone too much past to the north at least yet, but that's that's on the list. Definitely been uh, a beam you. I did my one of my 1,000Ks this spring, went up to... Um, well, first down southwest and then uh, back up towards Cumberland and back down to the southwest again into uh, into Tennessee, somewhere in that area. Oh, wow. Nice. Some beautiful country in between there. It is very rugged. Once you get up into West Virginia, too, the, the mountains are more peaky, rocky, kind of aggressive outcroppings and, and a lot of fun to fly. Takes the right day, though. Yeah, absolutely. I can second that. So when did your aviation journey get started? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure where it starts in the the very early years, but and really why I even fell in love with with flying in the first place. But I, I think it had something to do with this amazement that something so big and heavy could could even leave the ground. And so I did all the kind of normal air show things as a, a really young kid, maybe four, five, six. Started on flight simulator, and that I think was one of those. Uh, <laughs> obsessions that that kind of carries through but when you're young you get this opportunity to play with airplanes it doesn't cost you anything and i i spent a lot of time doing that actually even at the time you know microsoft 2000 was the better sim of the uh, of the options because you could still fly the concord on there but you know when i first flew a real airplane I was about eight, and my mom took me over to to the local airport for uh, for a lesson, and I was just totally hooked. I mean, I, I remember that night very clearly and uh, dreaming that I was flying throughout the whole night, and so that that really set the bug. It was a, a pretty hard uh, hard thing to get away from. I actually remember writing the the FAA shortly after that in an in an email asking why you had to be sixteen to solo. And that was, you know, that was a long ways away from an eight-year-old. <laughs> right. So I, I, I did pick up RC flying after that. And I figured that was the next best thing. You know, you can, you didn't have to be 16 and you could fly. Granted, 14 for gliders. I didn't know about gliders yet. We'll, we'll come to that. But uh, I, I picked up RC flying and really found that that was a, a good outlet for that energy. And spent a lot of time building and flying over those next couple of years, which would... You know, hindsight's twenty twenty here, but turned out to be really useful, kind of relevant experience in, in what turned out to be my, my real job later. But when I actually got into soaring, it, it really started at a Boy Scout Aviation Merit Badge event. And so my, you know, home club, Blue Ridge Soaring Society, at the time had no affiliation connection, never heard of it was hosting this. And so we had the morning kind of ground discussions, and then we had the opportunity to go fly. And when we were signing up and preparing to go, we were told that we could pick between the Super Cub and a glider. And so 
naturally I picked the Super Cub. I mean, gliders weren't you know, real aircraft. They're, they're not interesting. You go up and come back down. And so, you know, I don't know how or why, but fate intervened there and, and the club decided that they were only going to do glider flights. So I had to go take a glider flight. And I was obviously very disappointed before that. I mean, I was pretty dead set on, on flying the club and that was going to be really cool. But it's one of those key inflection points where you, you see how the outcome could have been very different. And, you know, I got, uh, got the glider flight, really fell in love with aviation in a, in a whole different way from that, that sense of peace. And, and the, we flew almost 45 minutes or so. And the fact that we could do that off of a 2,500 foot toe was just incredible. I, I didn't even know what to think of that. Yeah. The first time I, I got in a glider and, you know, you release and you're off and I'm thinking, okay, how long could we possibly stay up? And I just like you, I mean, I was amazed how long we could stay up and just use mother nature. It's, it's awesome. And the toe is a little fast and kind of bumpy and rough. And then you pull the release and all of a sudden it just gets real quiet and smooth. And it's a, a wonderful experience. And that, that really stuck. So I, unfortunately, the, the end of that year was pretty wet and we had a lot of snow. There was like three feet of snow into the early part of the next year. And it took forever for the, the field to dry out. But I came back shortly after that. It ended up being actually July 11th, 2010 was my, my first proper lesson. So about uh, 10 years ago, pretty much to last weekend. And 17 flights later, you know, I was off on my first solo flight. I, I still remember my feet shaking on the rudder pedals. I was super nervous, but you know, the sense of accomplishment that, that came from that realization of a, a dream to fly was just really powerful and, and pushed me to uh, continue getting, obviously, my private glider license, commercial CFI later, and then uh, also moving down the, the airplane track. So if you fast forward some, I finished my private glider license, started getting into what I would call kind of real soaring. And I went to my first camp in, in 2012 at Caesar Creek. And that was really the first time that I felt comfortable being able to, uh, to go places cross country. And I really loved that experience. Uh, actually, Rob Cluxton was the the lead for for the group that you know I was assigned to, and so we did lead follow with with Rob and a couple of others um, through that whole week. Then after that, the next spring went down to Seminole Lake for their cross country camp. Skipped spring break to do that. Don't regret it at all, and had a a great time flying there. And that summer started my my real contest soaring career with. Caesar Creek, Ionia, and then Harris Hill. And that was uh, all on a borrowed LS8 from our one of our local, I'll call him crazy German, uh, Peter Fortner, who really was my cross-country mentor and, and the guy who, who pushed me along to, to keep moving forward in the sport and eventually then you know, loaned me his LS8 to go fly these contests. Super important point, too, for, for others that are you know, mentoring or have young people that they, depending on the circumstances, may need a glider to fly to. We eventually got that all worked out with the club so you could take club gliders, but, you know, really could not have done that at the time without, without him stepping in. One of the big things I've heard of here on the podcast, talking to different guests, and some of the guys, they learned to fly and they were doing real well and they're ready for contests, but it's like, oh, I, I have to fly what? And, you know, they don't have the money to go out and buy these expensive gliders that they're flying these contests with. So if you do have someone 
that can help you out with that and supply that. That's that's huge. Yeah, and at the time, you know, the club was really supportive. We had an LS6 and an L33, and you know, I was planning to take the six, but we we had some issues with old bylaws that uh, that needed to be changed in order to allow them to be used for contests and and just couldn't happen fast enough for for that year. But you know, we got all that taken care of, and I, I can't say the the club and everybody there has just been so incredibly supportive. You know, it really does take uh, a lot of people to um, to raise raise one to the whole village effectively. And that goes for the whole community, though. I mean, there's there's a ton of people. All the sites that I've been at through internships or, or time away from home, and I've I've been members of several clubs, and at each one, there's there's you know another family that uh, that you you become a part of. Absolutely. So on the soaring and racing side of things, you know, I, after I really started picking up racing, got interested in uh, in flying the worlds, and after flying a couple of nationals, started to make a, a real push for that. So I flew my first junior worlds in in 2015. It was a standard series that we flew out of Narromine, Australia, and the team was Boyd Willett and Daniel Sazen and myself. So we had uh, that was the first real you know, experience with, with that contest. And it was like drinking from a fire hose. There's just so much going on, so many gliders in the air. You had to go relearn the the differences for uh, for FAI rules. And not that it's a huge deal. You just had to, it was a lot of, of new newness all at once. But uh, Boyd was a great, great mentor that got us through that experience safely and, and with a solid middle of the pack outcome. And of course, Daniel, you've talked to before, you know, Daniel and I met originally on Condor flying on a, a server that he used to host in uh, 2010. That was this DS Ridge server where you would go fly and, and dogfight and, and in Condor and have, you know, have fun. So I originally met this other young guy through there and then we started talking. And after a while, of course, Daniel and I would later end up being on three junior teams together and then now on the the senior club class team for the next worlds in France. So Condor actually brought you together. You may not have met him. Yeah, it, we. I started flying Condor originally just again because of that long winter season. So I, I started flying in there, and you know, there's there's a lot of debate and about positive and negative transfer of what you learn in Condor, but done reasonably well with with some guidance and uh, kind of an open mind. I, I found it to be super effective. Have I don't know how many how much time in Condor anymore, but well over a thousand and maybe into the two thousand hours. And when you think about the fact that we were flying every night and racing pretty much every night for several years, then that's that's a lot of tasks. Yeah, uh, Daniel yeah. and I actually started the the U.S. nightly soaring contest originally together, and I hosted it and scored for the first couple of years. And he's continued to make tasks ever since. I don't know how many days up to at this point. It's been easily several thousand, but to think of, um, that's probably, that is a contest series that has more tasks than have ever been flown. And, you know, the, maybe than in the rest of the real contests in the world, just because you do it every single day. Yeah. Daniel and I met again in Caesar Creek at the first camp that I, a first contest rather that I flew in, in 2013. So that's when we, we really met in person for the first time after flying online for a couple of years. And it's kind of, it, Daniel and I, after flying, you know, a couple of real contests together, we started to, to really make a point out of 
practicing team flying with the idea that we were likely to be the next junior team at the time with with Boyd. And so we really started flying together more more deliberately, again, at first on Condor and then also making attempts to see each other in person. It, at the time, it was more difficult to, to do that in a, in a contest explicitly, but we would at least try to get together and, and fly when we could. And I've really found that the team flying element of the, the worlds, you know, between flying that we've done with Boyd later in 2017, when we went to uh, Petrina, Lithuania with no rider. And then again, this, this last round in 2019 and in Hungary with uh, again, Noah and Mike Marshall, the, the fun that, that you get with team flying is, is just a very different kind of experience. Part of it is the fact that you, you get the shared accomplishment of working together to achieve some outcome, but also there's the misery loves company element that when things are going poorly and you're all falling out of the sky, at least, you know, you'll be in the field together. And that happened several times to us where we all landed out in the same fields and, you know, you sit there and, and sulk for a little bit, learn your lesson from the day and, and move on. But it, it really, really makes a difference when you have a, a team there and the kinds of flying that you can do with a couple of people, it's, it's a very different uh, risk, not a safety risk, but a, a you know, scoring and uh, competitive risk where you have a couple of other people that are all out sampling the air and you can start to play with different strategies. Whereas when you're by yourself, it's, I think you tend to be more conservative. At least I do. You don't fly as fast and you don't have as many opportunities to center thermals immediately. You don't get the experience. Um, when you're, you know, a three or f- person team, for example, in the, in the juniors there, you're your own little mini gaggle. <laughs> Granted, it's generally still better and faster to, to go with the bigger gaggle. But if you really see a key point where you need to break away, you can do that and you can get three gliders or wingtip to wingtip across a really big dead area to try to sweep the air and find the, the one thermal that's that's there. And it really makes a difference. The number of times that we've been saved by having a wingman really is surprising. Yeah, that's a cool technique. I've never really thought about that, but yeah, that makes sense. More samples. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> That's awesome. When you go and you approach a thermal and one bubble's left and the other bubble's a little right and you see who goes up more and, and recenter your turns based on that, it just, these little things start to, to add up and make a real difference. Yeah, so I, I obviously mentioned the RC flying element of you know my, my childhood and really continued that for a very long time. And it turned out that at the time, the uh, one of the labs at Virginia Tech needed an, an RC pilot. And so I'm from the Roanoke area flying at Newcastle and Virginia Tech is about an hour away. So in kind of late high school, I was talking to one of the club members at our club who happened to be a professor at Virginia Tech, Kevin Kokersberger. And it turned out he was looking for an RC pilot to fly some UAVs for, for the lab. And that's really where, where the professional uh, element of aviation got started. I was pretty sure I wanted to be an aerospace engineer before then, but you know, I, I went up there, basically I would leave, um, had the opportunity either to leave school early sometimes, or I uh, would fly on the weekends and go up to Blacksburg and fly these UAVs for their, their research projects as a, as a young high schooler. And that was a really cool experience. I really liked the, you know, Virginia Tech group and, and met a lot of the professors and people there. I will say there was probably some element of wanting to stay close to 
Blue Ridge Soaring Society that also kept me there for school. And I ended up going to Virginia Tech for aerospace engineering. And that was uh, an awesome experience. It's really grown quite a lot too in the in the last couple of years, but even at the time, it was it's still a great school. While I was there, I spent a lot of time in the labs, again, flying airplanes or working on airplane-related projects that they had available, and started going to conferences. The American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics is this kind of the main professional organization of, of aerospace, and so I went to their main conference every year, the Science and Technology Forum, which the professor that I had been flying for for a few years uh, took me there and, and paid for everything so I could go to all these technical sessions. And lo and behold, while I was there, I was at some employer info sessions and came across Aurora Flight Sciences, a you know, at the time relatively small company that uh, that I had only heard of before and didn't know much about, but really fell in love with the the mission and work that uh, Aurora was doing at the time for really to build and fly experimental airplanes of all varieties, you know, whatever uh, somebody wanted. A customer had a, a set of strange requirements and wanted to make something neat. And they, they came to Aurora and we made some really unique looking airplanes over the years. And so eventually that uh, that was really where I, I started and uh, I stayed with Aurora, still there now, and now running the, uh, as working as a program manager for one of the air taxi programs that we have. You get a chance to see some interesting aircraft, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, we're, we really are, I think, on the, the bleeding edge of, of what's going on here. The, you get to use the latest technology that's out there, work with some of the best people, and have customers that have really cool um, you know, requirements and, and projects. And it's it's just been a wonderful experience. It's taken me lots of places too, geographically, and that's been awesome. Did you get a chance to get in the air with any of those? So I haven't flown in any of the airplanes. They mostly tended to be uh, unmanned and autonomous, which I guess is a little ironic for a for a pilot. But that's kind of one of the core elements is putting that autonomy to work. But I've I've definitely been the Aurora locations were largely based around airports and working out of uh, the Manassas Airport at the headquarters there, you're sitting on the ramp eating lunch while airplanes are taxiing by. It's a really neat experience. We'll be right back with our guest, but right now our soaring safety segment with Paul Schweitzer. Being in the aviation business, I was always very, very conscious of liabilities. I mean, the, the reality of the U.S. society is if somebody crashes an aircraft, invariably they want to sue the manufacturer because certainly the pilot didn't do anything wrong. The reality is most accidents, and even more so with soaring accidents, it's pilot error. One of the things that Schweitzer Aircraft really f- was critical to our thought process as we designed and build aircraft was pilot safety. My father and his two brothers were at Harris Hill during the early 1930s and watched the person who crashed in a sailplane where his wings came off. And from that experience, my uncle Ernie became renowned in aviation for building 
you know, his iron gliders. They're incredibly safe, incredibly strong. And it's something we personally, as as family, took great pride in. And it was interesting. I think our the Schweitzer sailplanes are renowned for their safety of flight and protecting pilots. But when the our, the AGCAT airplane we made for Grumman was very much the same. Grumman designed an incredibly safe airplane, and we were very much focused on safety. When we then took over the helicopter program, the Hughes 300 helicopter was renowned to be the safest of any piston-powered helicopter, and we did things that made it even safer. So safety and integrity was fundamental to the Schweitzer's design concept on all of our products, and that's something that I think we can take great pride in. You certainly can hurt yourself in them, but you can hurt yourself in anything. And the number of letters we received over the years for people thanking us that they were in a Schweitzer glider when they had an accident that saved their life is you can't put a value on it. It just is very special. And uh, one of the things, my cousin Les and his son Kyle are running K&L Soaring, and they're supporting all the Schweitzer sailplanes. And, and it's really cool that they're there still dealing with the integrity and safety things and looking to make the products even safer. And I, When you think that the first 222 sailplane, which was the precursor to the 233, when that sailplane was built in the early 1950s, and I have little doubt that in the year 2050, people will still be flying the 233s and 222s. So having a sailplane that can last 100 years pretty much speaks for itself. If you'd like to hear the rest of Paul's story, episode 26, Soaring with the Schweitzer Family. If you'd like to sponsor our safety soaring segment, you can do that by contacting me at chuck at soaringthesky.com. And now back to our guest, JP. What are you doing right now? You're doing some traveling. You're in Switzerland right now, correct? Yeah, this this project is, um, you know, is really taking me across the world, and in particular to Switzerland and Germany a lot over the last couple of years. And so we uh, we have a Swiss office here that does a lot of design work and also a little bit of integration and test, and that's that's really why I'm why I'm here. Now, have you had a chance to do any soaring while you're there? Yeah, not as much as I would have liked. I, I tend when I'm here to be pretty busy with with work, unfortunately. But great that I love what I do. But I I would like to fly a little more. You can never complain. The few times that I have been able to fly, though, have been really spectacular. Flew once out of a smaller airport, uh, more in the the Alps, and so we we flew through the Alps. It was really really spectacular flight, flying down the Alps glacier and uh, you can see the Matterhorn a little bit in the distance. I think we flew six or seven hundred k that day, and it was really pretty, pretty straightforward. It was very impressive scenery, though. And then I've also flown a little bit from kind of central Switzerland, more than into the north and down the Jura Mountains towards Lake Geneva, and that's another really beautiful, really, really beautiful area. This whole country has a lot to lot to offer. I've also flown some floppy winged gliders, really uh, paragliders, cloth wings, and uh, I'd never 
done that before coming here, but it's it's super popular, and you know, a lot of times people will take their gear, hike up the the mountain, and then uh, fly off and fly back down to the valley, so or soar or whatever. Very uh, very popular though. That seems like an amazing experience. I've checked out some of those uh, some of those guys putting their stuff up on social media, but yeah, they literally go hiking and then go to the top of this peak and jump off and get to soar down through the valley. It's a, I actually would like to try that sometime. That, that looks amazing. highly recommended. It's on my list now after one flight, you know, I, I love sailplanes and, and we'll, we'll continue that for uh, probably forever. But the experience of sitting on a, on a, what feels effectively like a lawn chair while you're, you're soaring is a very different, very different experience. And I, I think would be very complimentary to, uh, to soaring as well in sailplanes. Obviously the yeah. LRD is kind of abysmal comparatively, but. Right. Did you do a tandem then? I did. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I mean, every you're, you're not in the cockpit, obviously. So everything is like all around you. The beauty is all there. I mean, you're just, you're literally kind yeah, of total, totally there. immersive. That's how it felt. <laughs> so you get a chance to get into some thermals or how, how did that flight go? Yeah, no, we flew almost two hours. Uh, it's probably oh, not wow. much of a, and probably probably not a super typical intro tandem, but had a good friend who flies a lot of uh, cross country. He actually just finished flying a, a contest for the, the day. They do a lot of kind of weekend contests. You can, you know, fly two day events and um, unlike us, right, you don't have to go for a, a whole week. It's a lot easier and a little more flexible, but they, oh, yeah, right. he finished flying that morning and then we got together and took the cable car up to the top did a little bit of a hike and then went flying off the, off the side, a couple hours of soaring and then back down. And one of the things that I found was particularly cool, at least in Switzerland with the public transit being as good as it is, you mentioned that, you know, when he lands out, he generally can land fairly close to a town, pack up his gear into his bag, walk to the train station and just take a train train back home. Oh, nice. Put your wing on your back and go home, right? (laughs) Very different than the whole sailplane experience of landing out. So how was your launch with with that? I mean, I got to ask how that went. Is it kind of like a couple steps and kind of jump right out there? How how'd that go? A couple steps and then the harness supports you. feels a lot like a rock climbing harness as it, it picks you up. Then you slide back in your seat. And it's all pretty straightforward. The nice. more surprising thing for me on landing was you, you've been sitting there for a couple of hours and your legs are... Um, not super awake, and then all of a sudden you have right. to run. <laughs> it's like, maybe made a little more awkward by the, the tandem rig and the, the fact that it's kind of right. hard to run yeah. attached to another person. But launch was pretty easy. Landing worked out okay. We didn't fall, but it was certainly awkward. So it's a little bit of a flare before you touch down then, obviously. That's yeah, exactly. how that works. Nice. Yeah, I, was, I, I definitely have to check that out. That, that sounds amazing. And so I didn't really need another be. hobby, but it, it's pretty compelling. Right? <laughs> I mentioned it to my wife, and she's like, really? Don't you already do gliders? I'm like, oh, it looks so amazing. Now I have to at least try it a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> I can empathize. So that, that sounds like a pretty awesome flight, but can you tell me about some of the flights in the glider that really stood out? Yeah, there's, there's a couple in particular. Um, really, I'll, I'll start with actually the most recent. So this year, obviously, the, the pandemic going on has had a lot of people you know, working home or working remote. And so I, I ended up staying with some family in Roanoke to help take care of them there. But it turned out that soaring was a 
pretty socially distant sport. The LS6 is in the club hangar fully assembled. There's tow out gear and there's a tow pilot who lives on the field. And, uh, you know, Brandon was available very frequently during the week. So, and I typically get up fairly early to work with the Swiss guys and, and the team there, and then, uh, had more of the afternoon to go fly. And so I could drive out to the airport, pull the glider out of the hangar by myself, drag it to the line. The tow plane would, uh, would come out with the two of us. You're at least six feet apart between the two struts on, <laughs> on the wing and then, uh, hook yourself up and get in, and go fly. It was, uh, that turned out to be super effective and flew, uh, something like 60 hours around the, March, April, May uh, this year. And, and that was some really good ridge flying. I hadn't seen ridge that good in, in quite a long time. So I ended up doing two 1000s, uh, seven, two 750s, a 500 and a 300K within those those two months or so. And each one was was a little bit different, but you know, that, that was, it wasn't so much any individual flight really, really stood out, but the fact that the that all of them together happened so quickly and close together was really pretty outstanding. Hadn't seen that here in a while. Individual flights that stand out though, you know, there's, there's off, there's an awful lot to think back on over the 900 or so that I've, I've done since I started flying. I would say that the first experience flying in the worlds in Australia, there was one particular fight. I don't remember exactly which day it was where, we were flying along uh, the same leg as the standard class gliders. So we were in standard Cirruses in club class, and then there were LS8s and Discus 2s running that same leg in standard Cirruses. And, you know, the thermals were up to 10 or 11,000 feet, something like that. And we were just pushing really hard, and you, we were pretty shocked at how well we were able to stick with these nice high-performance gliders that we would outcline them quickly, and then they would outglide us. But you know, they really didn't walk away as fast as, as we would have thought. Another particularly notable one was in 2017 at the Worlds there. There was a an interesting day. We had a great cloud street. We were all running towards the first turn point, and then the cloud street turned very much into uh, rain, and the whole area completely got shut down. And so the whole class found itself pretty much desperately scratching to to stay up and fortunately being a, an east coast pilot and uh, you know having fun a lot of relatively weak contests I, I consider myself particularly good at scratching and persistence and so i sat there and what couldn't have been more than about half a knot for a very long time moving kind of between this these couple of thermals at about a thousand feet and just waiting and waiting and waiting as I watched more and more of the fleet land out. And so I figured I would just try to see how long I could stay up and at this point just uh, be one of the last guys to land. I don't remember exactly how many. I think we had 20-something 20, 20 gliders in one field. Big field, but still in, in that one field. And then a couple others scattered through the area. Turned out to be reasonably good once it... it after sitting there for a while, being really patient, the thermals picked back up and the, the area recycled. And I, I got out and left everybody on the ground. Had my radio off for the majority of the flight since I, I figured it couldn't do too much good. And after I got, um, since the rest of the team had landed out and everything too. And once I got pretty close to final glide, I, I called the 
U.S. team ground to, to get an update, only to find out that so many people had landed out that the day wasn't, without making minimum distance, that the day wasn't going to to count. So I went ahead and finished the task. I think there were three of us that, that made it around out of the 40 or so. And unfortunately, the day didn't mean anything. Oh, man. All that work. <laughs> it happens, but it was very notable. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. It actually turned out to be a great soaring day once the area recycled, though. It, it is kind of crazy because I, the, I've been up a few times where it was like that. You know, I'm not really gaining anything, but you're not losing anything. You can stay forever in kind of the same area and just wait, 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 you know. <laughs> but, yeah, it teaches you, you know, how to stay up on little a little bit of thermal. Yeah, you know? and that, that persistence comes in really handy sometimes. I mean, it's not too often, but in the worlds, there tend to be fairly long tasks and you know, depending on what happens with the starts, you might be starting fairly late. And so mass land up days or, um, you know, days where at least it gets really, really soft at the end are, are pretty common. And so you, that, that experience and the ability to, to scratch out, uh, to scratch around and, and dig out really comes in handy. Absolutely. Can you tell me about the scariest tow or winch launch experience yeah. you may have had? Well, so I've been the director of safety and training at our, our club for about eight years. And so as a part of that, uh, not only at our club, but in the, the whole country, I paid pretty decent amount of attention to other accidents and, and other things that have happened in, in other clubs as I was preparing safety meetings and materials. For me personally, you know, there's a couple of uh, things that, that particularly stand out. One was doing a field orientation flight for a relatively you know, reasonably experienced visiting pilot. And we were flying on, it was a, kind of a Northwest day, 10-ish knots, and the ridge was going to work a little bit. But the interesting bit was about 200 feet. There was just one of the biggest bumps that I've ever felt ever in an airplane ever. <laughs> and it was so much so that, you know, it actually, uh, in the post-flight, when we were going through everything, you know, it, it pulled the battery out of its battery holder in the back. It kind of had a, a strap over it, pulled the strap through, unplugged the battery and left it sitting there. The front oh, seat wow. is a, a ballast in, in a Blanick has these, you know, these heavy ballast seats that, that clip in and it actually um, dislodged one of the, the clips on the seat and it wasn't seating, uh, wasn't seated super tight. And so the seat came loose. And then uh, at the same time, the spoilers just started to come open. And for me, you know, there's a couple of really good points there. I, I'd always been taught to guard the spoilers with my hand, not hold them, but just keep your open palm up against it. And the, that, you know, in that ex example, in that experience, I had my, my hand right there, it moved maybe an inch or two before it, it actually hit my hand. I knew immediately what happened and put it back in, no problem. They were, were definitively locked. That wasn't much of a problem, but those locks can be a little soft on the on the Blanick, and that was a, a serious bump. The other part of that was the the other pilot was obviously pretty concerned about what was going on and was asking if we should release and go back. And and this is another place where you could see a, a different outcome here where had I not been guarding the spoilers and they had come out and had there been, you know, a, a panic as the other Pilot was also suggesting, and certainly came through my mind too, to go ahead and release. The spoilers could have been out, maybe wouldn't have known it, and released at 200 feet, making a really serious emergency out of something that was not great, but also not really a, 
a serious emergency at that point. And so those that really in particular stuck. The other part of that is, you know, if things are going reasonably okay, even if something weird happens, if after that happens, the airplane's flying okay, I've resolved that the best thing one should do is keep climbing and, and stay on tow and get some height. You know, from 500 feet, you're probably just as dead as you are from 5,000 if there's a problem. And at least at 5,000, you've got more time to figure out what the problem is and troubleshoot, or um, if you're wearing a parachute to to get out rather than making a real emergency at a low altitude. Another particularly notable one was a, a tow plane power loss. So I was launching on a cross-country flight, had a very experienced pilot towing. The airplane had been fine before, did standard mag checks, lap around the pattern, no issues. And on the rollout, it was a little bit longer than expected, but reasonably hot day and, and not super strong winds. So that wasn't too unusual, though it definitely had had us a little on guard. And at about 50 feet, I saw the ring on the tow plane end coming my way and kind of realized really what had happened, that it really was a power problem. And the tow pilot actually uh, released so that they could could keep climbing and get out, had enough runway, got it back down and stopped with a couple hundred feet to spare. A couple of key points out of that, right? When, when this happened, obviously it all happens very quickly and had a good emergency option straight ahead on the field, was ready to, to do it if I needed. As soon as I saw the rope coming my way, I pretty much knew what happened. Pulled the release on my end, spoilers out, and stopped no problem. Had another overrun if I couldn't get down where I could have gone off to a, a field beyond and uh, and landed safely there too. So really keeping an eye on your options and being ready and attentive is uh, something that, that stuck for me. And I've seen that come up in a couple of other places. Had a really good friend who was unfortunately killed while, while towing, and there's... A lot of ambiguity in these kinds of accidents, and it's it's always hard to ever be, you know, really sure what what happens. But what I can say are the the sure principles that that come out of that. You know, if if you have some sort of distraction on tow, flying that tow is the number one most important thing that you have going on. And you know, if you have an issue and you have to release, you're out of position. When you pull the release, pull it as hard and as far as it'll go. And there's some interesting learnings having spent better part of a week looking at the video and the uh, the data from it actually had a GoPro on board uh, from that that GPS on the GoPro. You can really get a lot of information, for example, climb rates and how much power the airplane's making and attitude and all these kinds of things. But one of the lessons that, that came out of it is there was an attempt to release and then there released the rope actually didn't completely release in that. So when you're ready to release, pull the rope as hard as you can, as far as it'll go and do it a few good times for uh, you know good measure. And the other thing that you know I've definitely seen before uh, flying with students a lot too is don't touch anything in the cockpit until you can safely get back. I remember going to reach for uh, rudder pedals once after deciding that I needed to move them back. And, you know, in a lot of gliders, the rudder pedals and the release are awfully close together. And so for muscle memory, I, I caught myself uh, moving towards the release, not the rudder pedals, and fortunately stopped it. It was no problem. But, you know, that basically said, below those first thousand feet, don't mess with it. You can really only only screw yourself up. You see it a lot with students, too, in vent windows. At 150 feet, the student will always decide that that is the time that they should close the vent window and not during the the pre-flight. And so that's these little things that, that start to add up and contribute to distractions that can really cause 
uh, issues or cost you time when you when you have a real emergency. Yeah, I mean the other kind of lessons and, and things that I've seen from time as the uh, safety and training person at our at our club, you know, the other things that really seem to kill people spinning low is obviously the the really big one, and best way to do that is just avoid circumstances where you're you're doing lots of low turning, and when you do have to do it, like for example in a pattern good speed control and not having any skidding tendencies is really important. I see a lot of people that I've, I've flown with that when they're going to, uh, you know, they're trying to tighten their turn, they do it with rudder instead of more bank. And it's just really ineffective and can be really dangerous if you, if you get too slow and, and set yourself up for a spin entry. I've seen somebody fly with a tail dolly once. <laughs> I wasn't at the flight line at the time, but you know, was consulted once everybody realized what happened. And, and in a lot of cases with a reasonably heavy, you know, adult pilot, the CG is still probably in the envelope and it's not super dangerous. We've generally taken as a, a policy not to go incite a, an emergency by yelling release, 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 or something like that on the radio that can just cause lots of panic. And then they end up, you know, at 150 feet with a tail dolly and then have to figure out what to do. This goes back to the if you if you have things under control and it's going reasonably well, keep climbing. And so, um, you know, advise to to the pilot on the radio once he was at reasonably high altitude, I think fifteen hundred feet or so, that he had his tail dolly on and everything. You know, you should feel it out and be careful and take a little higher toe, do a little bit of slow flight, try not to set up for any spins, of course, and remember that he'd have poor directional control, so he should just roll out straight and not try to to clear the runway and he did all those things very uneventful and obviously very uh, thankful good teachable moment for for the rest of the club and the pilot and the ring runner and everybody else who who run wing, runs wings too similar sort of incident with the rear canopy that somebody took off with unlatched it at one of the clubs i was at and you know fortunately it it blew open pretty quickly and shattered as it was designed so there wasn't a big uh, drag break sticking up but you know the PIC didn't catch it, obviously, and they're they are the one responsible. But the wing runner also didn't catch it. And I, in both of these incidents, with the the tail dollies, with spoilers being left open, or with the canopy getting uh, left unlocked, there's usually multiple cues that that something's off. And I've tried to really drill into students to look for those multiple cues. You know, for the example with spoilers being left open, if you're the pilot. As you push the handle forward and you feel the over the center and you hear the clunk and then you look at the placard and say, yep, that's what I want. I want it closed. And then you look at the wings and you see that they're flush. You can really, uh, you've checked yourself in several different method, ways that, that they really are closed and locked. And in a lot of cases on the more modern glass gliders, you can actually see the difference on the trailing edge of the spoiler between whether they're locked or unlocked, even if they're closed. You know, as you push over that lock, it it uh, pulls the sprung cap of the spoiler into the wing and the little bit of gap on the back disappears and it's flush. And if you really pay attention and know what to look for is that the wing runner can double check. Um, obviously it's best that they look at the handle when they're at the cockpit, but even still they can double check again once they get to the wing. So you've got several different ways of looking for it. And the same goes for the canopy. You know, if you're the pilot, 
you know that the handles are in the right spot. You can look on some gliders and see physically that the pins are actually through the hole and engaged. And you can even take your hand and push briefly on the frame and just see that it doesn't move. And if you've done all of these things, you have verified independently through three different methods that the canopy is probably locked. Absolutely. Have you had any near misses or collisions mid-air? Yeah, when you fly with 80-something gliders in an event, uh, there, there are lots of circumstances that are sporty. Um, you know, generally it's thermaling, and, and most of the cases where people got too close, it was somebody aggressively uh, turning or cutting off or blowing through the, the gaggle on a, on a thermal entry. Those are kind of the most common. And, you know, Flarm doesn't really help in those because there's so many people around. You might have 30 gliders in one thermal that it's kind of beeping pretty constantly. But I have definitely uh, found that to be really useful for the longer straight sections, either flying on the ridge or looking for people joining your thermals or under cloud streets and those kinds of things. I haven't had, I think, anything particularly notable other than just a number of relatively small things, but you kind of... That sort of comes with the the territory in the larger contests. So you just be careful and keep your head outside a lot. You know, in a thermal, at in a big gaggle like that, the optimization of the climb is much more a second priority than not hitting all of the other gliders that are there. And that usually just means being relatively predictable and and careful when you uh, when you enter and exit. It's not the most efficient. You're not going to dive uh, out the the thermal, or you're not going to come in at 120 knots and pull up in front of everybody in, in the most efficient way. But that, that trade-off is what comes with the territory when you fly with a big group. What are some weather products that you prefer? Do you, I mean, do you use weather products? Sure, yeah. I've, I mean, I've probably used pretty much all of them just depending on, on where I am. Uh, still use XC Skies, SkySight, and then Metars and Tafts. When you're in the U.S., it's pretty easy to, to pull that up and just get a, a second check on how the day is progressing. You do find that, especially too, in a lot of contests, you know, one of the things I really love is that as long as it's soarable, you know you're pretty much going to go anyway. <laughs> so it becomes much more about trying to get a sense of where you think the weather is going to be better or whether you should go deeper into one turn cylinder or the other, or whether you think the day is going to end early and trying to get your, your start timing right. Yeah, it definitely teaches you to be a safer pilot as well, because obviously if the conditions aren't great, you're not going to go Yeah, up I've anyway. never felt like I had to fly in a circumstance where I didn't think it was safe at a contest. But I, I definitely have flown in circumstances where I wouldn't have gone cross-country because I was pretty sure that I was going to land out and you know very quickly. Um, and the cool thing about contests is you, you do it anyway, and it's safe, and you be careful and tiptoe. Somehow, more often than not, you seem to make it around. <laughs> it's... It's pretty magical. So have you flown with any Yeah, Hawks? I the first time I flew a one twenty six at our, our club, somebody had a really nice polished one twenty six and there was some very large migration. Unfortunately I, I don't know enough birds to really be be able to identify exactly what they were, but there was this large group of, of hawks that I, I spent a lot of time thermaling with there and you know, depending on where you are in the world, birds seem to be better or worse at identifying good thermals. I found uh, this is just my experience. Take it for for whatever it's worth, and the locals probably can can say better. But you know, flying in Texas, for example, at, at TSA, I found that the birds there didn't usually do such a great job at finding stronger lift. Whereas at other places, or in Newcastle, for example, if you see a bird 
you generally want to move your core or your you know your search to uh, to where that bird is because they're probably in something that's stronger. My experience, your mileage may vary. No, I, I mean anytime I see like red-tailed hawks, just about every time if I go over there in that area they're flying in, I, I usually hit lift on my. Yeah, it's a super effective thermal marker. <laughs> Very primary. It tells you whether they're going up or down or not. And it's a right? lot of fun to fly with them. <laughs> they keep up pretty well. So are there any people out there that you'd like to give a shout out yeah, to? Yeah, there's probably way too many people to to really name everybody. But I, I would start by saying, of course, my my parents had a, a huge part in all of this. Mom going and sitting at the airport all the time while, while I was flying. And then dad taking me to, uh, to the contests. And you know, as a high schooler, being able to go across the country and, and fly was uh, a really, that was very important in my later cross-country you know, adventures. But uh, aside from parents too, the, the whole soaring community and, and aviation community I found to just be wonderful. I met so many people all throughout the world that uh, that really make uh, the community very special. And, you know, one of the things that I hope to do now as one of the, the co-chairs of the SSA Youth Junior Committee is give others those opportunities that that I had as well because I think it was such a defining part of uh, one, a very enjoyable part of my, my life so far. And, and also such a defining part of, of how I, I got here. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with that. So uh, we hope to, to be able to give others those same opportunities, but on the question of, you know, who to really thank the, uh, the people of the Blue Ridge Soaring Society, uh, they really, I think uh, raised me in a lot of ways too. Well, JP, thanks for being on the podcast today. It's it's been great hearing your story, and thanks for the great advice out there. I mean, that's good stuff and important stuff. We all can be better and safer pilots for sure. Yeah, thank you, Chuck. Encourage other young people to uh, to reach out and contact information's on the uh, Juniors SSA page, and uh, they can ask any questions. And there's also some great scholarships out there for young people. So, thanks for the time. Great talking with you, Chuck. Hi, it's Natalie Flygirl Kelly. And Fly Alyssa. We are female pilots, aviation lovers, and hosts of the podcast, Cockpits and Cocktails. We use this podcast as a way of sharing our journeys in aviation and allowing other females in aviation to share their amazing, inspiring stories as well. Please give us a listen and join us for this fun, informative podcast with adventure and humor weaved in. Blue skies. Cheers. And now our Sky Sight Soaring Tips and Techniques segment. If you'd like to use the coupon code for SkySight to get it absolutely free for 17 days, you can do that. Coupon code SOARINGTHESKY. All one word, all caps. And now David Hart tells us what it's like taking off in a motor glider. Climbing out in a motor glider, once you get clear of the ground and now you're climbing, uh, in my glider, DG-800, there's a instrument cluster. It's kind of digital and it shows you the basic things you need to know climbing, which is your fuel level, your RPM, and your engine temperature. And so each of those needs to be, you know, in the proper, (laughs) you have to have enough gas and you have to be running at the right RPM and and, uh, the right temperature. And you kind of monitor those things as you you go and make sure that you don't exceed any parameters. Uh, But that's just a glance, you know, every... uh, every few seconds or every 10 seconds or so just to make sure everything's in the grain. 
Thank you for joining us for another soaring adventure and hearing some great advice from pilots all over the globe. Don't forget to leave us a review on your favorite podcast app or on Apple Podcasts. It does help the podcast and the soaring community grow. Also, don't forget what Michelle told you about. Hit me with an email at chuck at soaringthesky.com. Send us those great picks to enter you a chance to win that Condor keypad from Cumulus Soaring. One more thing. How would you like to be an on-the-road reporter for the podcast? We want to hear all the great hangar stories from your pilot friends at the Gliderport. So grab your phone, get an audio interview of one of those great stories, send it to us, and you may be part of the next episode here on Soaring the Sky. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll see you next time right here on Soaring the Sky. If you would like to say hi, just drop Chuck a line at chuck at SoaringTheSky.com or you can send us a note on the website SoaringTheSky.com Also, if you're a pilot, we want to hear your story. Just send us an email and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next week for another great guest and adventure on Soaring the Sky. Music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Voiceover work was provided by Michelle Perez. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton.